So looking at John chapter 10, and it begins with Jesus revealing himself as the good shepherd. And you have the ego of me again, the I am statement. And as Christians in the 21st century, it's, it's easy for us to read past all of those I am statements as if, yes, this should make sense to us. This is who we know Jesus to be, all of those statements that Jesus used to reveal himself in the Gospel of John. But if we were in the first century amongst the first hearers of Jesus, every single one of those would have appeared like an atomic bomb in the middle of whatever other conversation was taking place because there would have been no doubt to those who were the original hearers of Jesus speaking these words that he was declaring himself to be God. Not only was he declaring himself to be divine in some sense by using the I am formula that God had used to reveal himself to Moses, he is saying, I am he in human flesh. He refers to himself and was even revealed prior to his coming, as we see in the prologue to the Gospel of John, as the Son of God, but the continuity, the divine identity, I am. Back during the end of the 19th century, when you had liberal theology just beginning and uh, kind of secularist versions of Christianity happening, you had, especially in Europe, you, you had people trying to find a way not to have to deal with Scripture as they used to say, qua scripture, as scripture, but rather with scripture as a human artifact. And then cutting Jesus down to size was a major ambition of liberal theology, not because they disliked Jesus, but because they did like Jesus. They just liked Jesus as a superlative moral teacher. They didn't like Jesus as the self-declared Son of God. So one of the patterns that you saw in, uh, in liberal New Testament studies of that era was to try to say Jesus never claimed to be God. This was a church invention. This was, uh, this was the church uh, forcing upon the biblical text a theology that isn't there. And uh, if you look especially at the Synoptic Gospels, at Matthew, Mark, and, and, and Luke, given the textual criticism and the source criticism and all the various forms of literary criticism they brought to the New Testament, they would say, well, Jesus probably never actually said that that way. Uh, and especially as you look at, uh, at Matthew and Luke, they would say the miracle accounts, they are hyperbolic. This is, a, well, I, this is one of my favorite phrases used by the liberal scholars of the day, heightened supernaturalism, which raises the question, what other kind of supernaturalism is there? I mean, if you're going to talk about heightened supernaturalism, that's like talking about really wet water. Uh, it, it really doesn't make any sense, but this, uh, you know, th this was hyper supernaturalism that heightened. This was, a, this was a church invention. But the big obstacle uh, to, uh, to the argument that Jesus never claimed to be God is the entirety of the Gospel of John. And you see it in a passage like this, but it was declared in the very beginning. But, he, but in a passage like this where Jesus reveals himself as the good shepherd and uses the formula, I am the good shepherd, there is no doubt now, we are looking this morning, picking up at verse 22. So, when we were together last on this text from John 10, we saw the fact that as Jesus declared himself to be the good shepherd, look at verse 14, for instance. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my, down my life for the sheep, and I have 
Other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. It's a picture of the church, the redeemed people of God. There are Jewish believers. In the very beginning, Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience. They were the first believers, those who came to faith in him. But he has other sheep not of this flock. And that's a remarkable statement because the messianic expectation was that this would be the great redeemer figure of Israel, and Jesus is. He makes that point over and over again, but he says, I have sheep not of this flock. Now, those who have tried to misuse this text say, this means not of the church. This is, a, you know, I, I have other sheep. Uh, I have Hindu sheep and Buddhist sheep and all this. Jesus is clearly not saying that. He's saying, I have non-Jewish. I have sheep not of the flock of Israel. They're not of this flock. Because one of the other major points of the entire gospel of John is the exclusivity of the saving work of Christ. That's, a, that's not in question. But as, as the passage continues, Jesus, speaking of himself as the good shepherd, speaks of his atonement. I lay down my life for the sheep. But in verse 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Clear, death, burial, resurrection. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's an amazing passage about the inter-Trinitarian relations between the Father and the Son. To the Son has been given, isn't this a strange way, an unexpected way to put it? To the Son has been given authority to lay down his life. It's an astounding statement. Why does Jesus need authority to be given to him to lay down his life? And the answer is because he is not merely laying down his life, as someone may in our sense, do so. It is because when Jesus lays down his life, this is God in human flesh laying down his life. He, his will is only to do the will of the Father. And it is not merely a death, it is an atonement. That's the big issue. Jesus, the Son, was given authority from the Father in order to die a substitutionary death. The Father gave him authority to die in the place of sinners. Not just to die, but to die in the place of sinners. And then he gave him authority to take it back up, speaking of the resurrection. This charge I have received from my Father. Then verse 19, we, we, we go to the crowd. Where's the crowd? What is the crowd thinking? And that's always very important to ask, because... When John gives us the narrative of Jesus, he always places it in the context so we know that this is what comes first and this is what comes next. There was a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes? of the blind. Now remember, that's John 9. 
where Jesus gave sight to the man who was blind from birth. But the speculation is, is dividing the house of Israel, the, the, the flock of Israel is being divided by Jesus. And some of them are saying, anyone who talks this way is filled with a demon and is to be dismissed. Who should listen to him? Just be done with him. But there are others who are saying, you know, that really doesn't make any sense. How can someone who's filled with a demon speak like this? The, the fact is that Jesus does not blaspheme. That's the key issue, and, and that's really key for what's going to follow in John 10. Demons blaspheme. Jesus does not blaspheme. How can he be a demon? He keeps bringing glory to God the Father. What demon would bring glory to God the Father? What demon would speak of being under God's authority, given permission to do this and that? What demon would heal the eyes of a blind man? It doesn't make sense. The house is divided, but it's divided over the issue of blasphemy. That will become clear very quickly. Now we come to verse 22. At the time of the Feast of Dedication, at the time it took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So at that time, the Feast of Dedication is taking place. Jews would be headed for Jerusalem. An enormous crowd would be gathered. And uh, this is the winter, the winter uh, festival, and uh, the time of the feast that would take place. So you'd have a massive number of the flock of Israel who'd be coming into Jerusalem, and as they would be in Jerusalem, the temple becomes the absolute center of attention. And when Jesus here is walking around the temple, he's doing exactly what a prominent rabbi would do. A prominent teacher would be walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And this means you are invited to come and hear what this rabbi has to say. This is the, this is the sociology of the day. This is, uh, this is a prominent rabbi making himself available to those who would be coming to the feast and would be attracted to the temple and would be looking for some good teaching. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It's an interesting statement. How long will you keep us in suspense? You realize the disciples themselves must have felt this acutely. There are, in all of the Gospels, especially in the Synoptics, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's so many moments in which you just think Jesus could say, okay, now you know. I'm God in human flesh. I'm the second person of the Trinity. I'm the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the Redeemer. And now you know. But Jesus doesn't do that. He he lets his disciples do that. By the time you get to Matthew chapter 16, he asks the disciples, but who do you say that I am? The Gospel of John's a bit different because John is giving us the understanding of Jesus that is most richly theological from the very beginning, literally where the, the Gospel begins. 
But he helps us to see that this question can't be avoided. How could anyone do what Jesus does and not be the Messiah? But Jesus does things that go beyond what anyone would have imagined the Messiah to do. Who exactly are you? How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Notice how Jesus answers. In verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. Now you say, well, where, where, where exactly did Jesus tell them? I, did we miss the press conference? Uh, where, where exactly did Jesus say? By the way, here it is. Take this down. I'm saying this on the record. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. No, it, it's, not, it's not in those words that Jesus spoke, although his words add up to that, to anyone who has ears to hear and eyes to see. But Jesus is telling them primarily that his works are the words. It's a very important thing. You know, how could I do what I do if I'm not who you are speculating that I am? He makes this very clear. I if I told you, well, let's look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. So Jesus says, the works are the words. But you don't believe, but he doesn't say you don't believe because you're dim-witted. He doesn't say it's you, you, you don't believe because even you're sinful in this sense, uniquely so. He says, you don't believe because you are not part of my flock. This amazing passage I want us to see so clearly follows. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Well, brothers and sisters, this is such an astounding passage. Just these three verses taken together. Jesus has already, earlier in this chapter, identified himself as the good shepherd. In verse 7, he said, I'm the door of the sheep. In verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He compares the good shepherd to a hired hand. And then look at verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So the, the first time he uses the phrase, I am the good shepherd, he describes it in an atonement context. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He compares it with a hired hand, but you'll notice he speaks of the voice. They know my voice. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. But this is amplified tremendously in the verses we just looked to. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, let me just ask you a hypothetical question. How do you explain how anyone becomes a Christian? It's a key, it's a key question. Let's just imagine that we're in a context in which 
the gospel is declared. Let's, let's, let's up the ante a little bit. Let's say we're talking about the open declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a crowd of people, none of whom have ever heard the gospel before. So let's imagine we've gone someplace where the gospel's never been before, and we have people who do not have the categories of the gospel. You have the opportunity to share the gospel. You preach Christ. You preach Him crucified for our sins. You, pray, you, you preach Him raised by the faithfulness of the Father as the vindication of that sacrifice. You declare the free offer of the gospel to all who believe. You, you summarize it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whosoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. In this hypothetical situation where the gospel's never been heard before, you declare the gospel, and then there is a mixed response. There are those who, puzzled, seem to turn their backs and walk away, thinking, that well, that was interesting. And, and there are others who are infuriated. And, and then there are some who are interested. And then there are those who believe. How do you explain that? Well, Jesus explains it in part in Matthew in the parable of the sower and the soils, those four different responses. But here in the Gospel of John, in, in Jesus explaining himself and who he is, he helps us to understand because he says basically, my sheep hear my voice. That's astounding. When we preach the Word of God, when we preach the Gospel, here's the good news. Christ's sheep hear His voice. Now, this helps us to understand the Gospel as we, we speak of it in the architecture of Reformed theology, and there is no Gospel that is clearer on these issues in the Gospel of John. This is, you could say here, a place where in the background we see the doctrine of election. It's just, it's just here. It's, it's undeniably here. The doctrine of Election, God's eternal purpose to save those who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would they believe? Because of the priority of God's will in electing them unto salvation. Throughout the history of the church, there have been people who said election is a hard doctrine. Well, here's the, here's the sweetness of it. The gospel doesn't return void. It, 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 it's, not a, it's not a check that's never cashed. It, it, it's not an offer of no effect. The, the doctrine of effectual calling is here. In fact, it's, it's the most prominent first thing we see here. This is the calling, the internal call of the Holy Spirit. When we preach the gospel in this hypothetical context where the gospel is being preached to a crowd and it's never been heard before, the doctrine of effectual calling helps us to understand why something is happening in the hearts of certain people, and they can't even fully explain it, but they are being drawn to Christ. They are being, they are being called. The, the, kaleo, it's, 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 a, it's an incredibly strong word. This is not a calling that you can refuse, because it's not a calling you would refuse, because the calling is what makes you not want to refuse, but rather to believe. When that calling takes place, 
it is so sweetly described here as Jesus the good shepherd with the good news that his sheep hear his voice. In your own testimony of how you came to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, at least in some way, your own testimony, our own testimony, has to come down to the fact that somehow, in some place, we heard the voice of the shepherd. And we obeyed him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So, so how do you know who Jesus' sheep are? They're, they're, they're following him. That's, that's how you know who sheep are. His, his sheep are those who obey him. There are those who are his disciples. That's the great commission, to go into all the world and make disciples. And you'll recall that it says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. This is, this is how you see it. You, you, this, who are his sheep? They're the people who obey him. They, they heard his voice and they followed him. Preachers and, uh, and, and expositors of Scripture are always tempted here to get too sheepish. You know, too many metaphors about sheep and how dumb they are and messy they are and ugly they are, and no doubt all that's true, but my sheep herding experience is absolutely nil. So all I know about sheep is what I've heard from people who know more about sheep than do I. But one of the interesting facts about sheep is that they just instinctively follow. They're instinctive followers. There are no intrepid sheep explorers. Uh, because they're just a following, herding animal. That's, that's why sheep are sheep. Well, that's why we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's because we heard the voice and we followed. And we, was there a rational dimension to this? Of course. Was there a, an emotional dimension to this? Of course. But none of that explains because that rational dimension may be working just as well, just as cognitively in the person sitting next to you who didn't believe. And, and the emotional or affective, intuitional side, that, that's not sufficient to explain this. It's just incredible that Jesus says here, look, it's as simple as this. I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, that middle part's also important because our experience as Christians is that when we preach the gospel or we share the gospel, we can't predict who's going to believe and who's not going to believe. That's another point Jesus made in the parable of the sower and the soils. You, the sower sows the seed indiscriminately. You don't have a clue who's going to respond. There are people who look absolutely resistant to the gospel, and the next thing you know, they're believers. There are people who look as if they're on the brink of faith, and they die on the brink of faith. But it's not a surprise to Jesus. He already knew them. That's also really important. Shows us how the foreknowledge, the omniscience, and the, and the foreknowledge of God turn out. God isn't surprised when anyone responds to the gospel, either with belief or with disbelief. He's not a spectator. 
This was foreknown. It's foreknown to Jesus. And Jesus will say this over and over again. He told us this in John chapter 6. And you've got to hear the echoes of John chapter 6 here. Because we are told in John chapter 6, then this is the passage in which Jesus declares himself to be the bread of life. And we're going to look back at it in just a moment, two verses in particular. But at the end of it is, is when Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you also want to go away? And, uh, and, and, and Peter says, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And beyond that, we've come to know you're the Holy One of God. But it says in John chapter 6 that Jesus knew, he knew who it was who would betray him. He knows. And that's a comfort to us too. The good shepherd's sheep know his voice, but he knows the sheep. And then he offers this promise. Just look, he goes on, because why does he say this here? Because he doesn't have to say this here. He says this here because he knows we need to hear it, because it's not the issue in question. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, there's perseverance. It's right there. He doesn't lose any. He loses no one. Those whom he foreknew, he also... Well, there's Romans chapter 8, where we will look in conclusion. Nothing's a surprise. He doesn't lose anyone. He's never surprised when someone hears his voice and comes. But let's, back, let's look back at John chapter 6 for just a moment. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Verse 37, all, absolutely categorical language, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. And then look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, not in a little bit, marginal losses. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Now, of course, you see verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. So again, no one can be taken from me. When the Father gives them to me, they stay mine. And then by the time we get to John 10 and the verses we're looking to today, we just see this amplified as Jesus describes himself here, not as the bread of life, but as the good shepherd. You'll notice that Jesus ascribes this authority to the Father again. And, and even as earlier in the passage, he told us that the Father has given him authority to lay down his life and authority to take it up again. It's also the Father's authority who has given all those who will be his to the Son, and it's ultimately the Father who's the protection. He doesn't say, I'm not going to lose anything because 
this is my authority and I declare it. No, it's actually the Father's authority. Again, we see this in verse 29. My Father who has given them to me. So, in the economy of salvation, how is it that Jesus has His people? It's because the Father has given them to the Son. And, and, and the Father's gift is an assured gift. This is the omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign God. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. That's a good thing to know. That's who He is. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Again, whose authority is at stake here? It's the authority of Jesus, but he, he has received this authority from His Father, and it is to the Father that He points and says, He is the one with ultimate authority. No one's going to snatch any of mine out of my hand because the Father will not allow it. It will not happen. How many believers are lost? None. How many Christians fail to run the race? None. And you say, well, that's not what church history looks like. Well, yes, it is, because here you are, we're not told that all those who claim His name will persevere to the end. That's not the doctrine of perseverance. The doctrine of perseverance is that all those who were called and born again, regenerated, that of those, none will be lost. This doesn't say that those interested in Jesus, of them, none will be lost. It doesn't even say of those who make a public profession of faith in Christ, none will be lost. There's no such promise. The promise is that if the sheep hear his voice and follow him, he loses none of them. Even in these verses, there's more. He ends by saying, I and the Father are one. Now, here, here's where we need to follow where we were just a moment ago. The house of Israel is divided listening to Jesus between those who are saying, hey, you know, he just gave sight to a man born blind. No one has spoken with this authority. He, he must be the Christ. And those who are saying, no, but the stakes are high because of the way he's talking and the way he's acting, then this can only, if he's not the Christ, then he is a demon. But what do demons do? They demonize. <laughs> they blaspheme. But Jesus hasn't done that. He, he's been bringing glory to the Father. But what we're going to see here is how the stakes get heightened and I mean radically so, just in this, this very short verse. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, what, what, what's, what's to get our attention here? That will not be true of the Messiah as the Messiah. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that the Messiah and the Father are one. That, no, not at all. In, in, instead, looking at the Old Testament, we're told that the Messiah is going to be the one who will sit on David's throne forever. Now, by the time we 
understand how this gets laid out in the New Testament. One of the most important ways we understand is the three offices of Christ, prophet and priest and king. But remember, we have to be taught that. Israel did not knit that together in their theological imagination in the time between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of Christ. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, the disciples have to put all of this together. Prophet and priest and king. Messiah and son of God. But Jesus puts it all on the line when he says, I and the Father are one. To say this is either a revelation of the fact that he is God in human flesh or that he is Satan. He is a demon. So if the house was divided, Jesus does not say to the divided house, you know, there's some common understanding we can work on here. We can work with this. Instead, knowing what was in their hearts, Jesus just puts a bomb in the middle of the room and sets it off. Well, the point was received. Look at what follows in the text. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works in the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? It's a brilliant retort. You know, seriously? Giving sight to the blind? Multiplying food by hundreds and hundreds and eventually thousands? Is that why you're stoning me? Are you stoning me for healing limbs? The good works I've done? Is that why you're stoning me? You'll notice, by the way, that he doesn't just say the good... He says, the works are from the Father. I have shown you many good works from the Father. So Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. He's saying, if you're going to stone me, you're going to stone the one who did these works for the Father? These works from the Father? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. There it is. It had to be coming. There it is, right there. And remember, this is going to intensify as John helps us to see that the cross is coming. So th this is it. It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because being a man, you make yourself God. Well, that's the ultimate form of blasphemy. It's the ultimate form of idolatry. It's, it's the same thing, right? It's, it's, it's the same impulse. It's ascribing God's identity and authority to something or someone who is not God. That is the ultimate form of blasphemy. It can't be a more classic case. They say... We're not going to kill you for your works, trying to make a division between the works and the one who worked through him. But instead, it's for your blasphemy, specifically because you being a man, make yourself God. Now, remember that, that formula, just, just remember those words very carefully, that you, being a man, make yourself God. Okay, follow the logic now. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? 
If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Well, that's an odd argument. It's a, it's a strange argument. You have to look to the context carefully. Jesus is here pointing to Psalm 82.6. What, what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying that in the Old Testament, God addressed human beings as gods? Well, it's, it's a technical argument, but Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Blasphemy, defined scripturally, is a violation of the law. That can't happen if the law states what is being claimed to be blasphemy. You have to follow the logic here. Jesus says, is it not written? In other words, he uses the scriptural authority. This is exactly the right impulse for scriptural people. Ask, is it not said in scripture? Is it not written in your law? your law to Israel, standing in the temple, remember? He said, I said you are gods, that psalm reference. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, another testimony of Scripture, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? It's an argument that completely takes their breath away because he turns to Scripture And he's not telling us to look to that scripture and see that we are all he. That's not the point. It is to say their argument about blasphemy isn't a very careful argument. Even just based upon the language of scripture. But Jesus is headed somewhere with this argument. Look at verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Another interesting argument. Jesus first asked them, for which work from the Father is it that you're going to to stone me? And they said, it's not your works, it's your words. And then they're claiming a scriptural authority. Jesus turns their argument on its head, ties them into consternation, and and comes back, and, and then they get back to the works. Jesus says to them, but if I do them, meaning the works, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. In other words, if you just ponder what you're saying here, just follow your own logic. How are you going to explain these works? How, how, Honestly, given the Old Testament, because the Scriptures cannot be broken, just use your own knowledge of the Scriptures. How can this be blasphemy? I'm bringing glory to the Father. It's the very opposite of blasphemy. But he knows that they know, that he knows that they know, that when he says, I and the Father are one, that's everything. It's, it's everything. It's either true or false. And the only options here are to see that if it's false, then they have a massive problem they can't explain because how could someone 
who would blaspheme by uttering the ultimate blasphemy, how can he be doing these works which can, which can only come by the Father? There is no adequate Jewish explanation. And that's, that's the point that the Gospel of John, John really helps us to understand. There is no adequate Jewish explanation for how Jesus could do what he does if his words aren't true. They don't have a category. Jesus makes that so clear here. How are you going to explain me, huh? You don't like my words, but you see the works. And at one point, again, Jesus had earlier said in John 10, if you don't believe me, then believe the works. The, the, the works are the signs, John will call them over and over again. They're the signs. And they're not explainable other than the words of Jesus are just as real and just as true as the works of Jesus. Very quickly, looking at the text. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This is where Jesus says, elsewhere, my time has not yet come. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at the first, and there he remained. And many came to him, but they said, John did no sign, 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 sign. John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is what's interesting. So they, were to, they go to where John had been baptizing, and, uh, and they realize, you know, John didn't do any works. John, John didn't do any miracles. No blind given sight with John. But John spoke of Jesus, and you know, upon reflection, just think about this, everything he said was true. And many believe. So people are beginning to connect the dots. And, and it, it's because, as Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. Follow me. I mentioned that just in these verses where we look at the center part of John chapter 10, when we're looking at just these three verses, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Look very quickly over to Romans chapter 8. And just consider these verses. Verse 29. Well, let's actually go, to, excuse me, to, to, to verse uh, 28. We'll read the whole thing in sequence. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We see the same testimony in the Gospel of John in John chapter 10. Those precious words, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and follow me. And I know them. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let's pray. Our Father, we're just so unspeakably thankful for this text. May it live and expand 
and grow in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ, we pray. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.